This podcast series will share personal moments of connection and deeply felt experiences. If anything you hear has a triggering effect, please reach out to someone who can help keep you safe. Or remember, you can phone Lifeline at any time on 13 11 14. That took all my strength. I always talk about taking the first step. That's probably the hardest thing you can do is accept that you actually got something wrong with you or acknowledging the fact that you need an out, you need a spell. Father of three, Brendan Cullen, manages a 50,000-acre sheep station 120 kilometres out of Broken Hill. Raised on his family property, it was always his dream to return and take over from his dad. He did go back for seven years, but then the loss of his dreams, together with the stresses of rural isolation and farming in the drought, took its toll. We all know about the depression caused by rural isolation. Here Brendan, his wife Jacinta and farming buddy Lance drill down to explain the factors that cause it. Jacinta, my wife and myself, we went and managed a few properties before we went home. So I didn't just leave school and then go home. There was a window of opportunity to move back to uh, home and I thought, well, this is the best thing ever. So we jumped at it straight away and we we moved into the Shearer's Quarters, uh, which was only about 50, 60 metres from uh, my parents' place. And the problem is, one of the, one of the biggest issues is, is that if you're working in an environment like that, whether it be in a family environment or a, uh, a managerial uh, environment, you don't have the opportunity to walk out the door and leave your work environment. That's quite tough. So um, your work environment not only is outside, but it's actually inside the house that you live in. Uh, you don't have the chance to go home and, and sit down and, and um, just um, just spend some time with your with your wife and your kids. It can be a dangerous environment living like that because you know you've always got someone looking over your shoulder. Not intentionally. It's just you're living in each other's pockets, and in, unless you can find happy ground all the time, um, it can be quite difficult at times. So, and it did become difficult, but. Um, through that process, I suppose I was home for the best part of, let's say, seven years. Succession. 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 Yeah, succession is um, quite difficult. There's so many um, things attached to succession. When you've got uh, families on properties or, say, for example, um, parents... Uh, grandparents, even great-grandparents, still involved in the farming uh, enterprise. Um, you have, it, it can be quite difficult because the younger generation or the last generation that is on that property, there's an expectation on those people. Um, there's an expectation to um, succeed. And I don't believe it's self-imposed. Um, it is spelled out here sometimes. So um, you're in a position where you think, gee, you know, this is a solid outcome. But at the same time, you don't have an opportunity to make any decisions because you don't hold the checkbook. So you can be working for nothing for a very long period of time, hoping at the end of the day that you get the opportunity, and you may be 60 before you get it. And that is tough. I mean, that is really tough. I, I admire anyone that goes through that situation. Uh, I couldn't. I, I think I could envisage what was happening as opposed to my parents envisaging what was happening. So from that, from, from about three years on, um, 
I basically had to find the courage to say, well, you know, we've got to move on because I don't envisage we have a future here anymore. And um, that was bloody tough. That was really tough. So um, we went through a, through a process there and um, to cut a long story short, um, we parted company. It was probably the best thing that could have ever happened. It gave us the freedom to move on, but it probably also gave my parents the opportunity to move on as well. Drought. 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 Droughts are evil bloody things. and um, So when you um, uh, fall into a drought, and I say fall into a well, not so much fall into a drought, but you ease into a drought, I always refer it to as a, as a, um, as a disease. Uh, it, um, it starts from a long way out. So you don't wake up in the morning and see it dusty outside and whatnot and your sheep are poor or your stock are poor. It starts from a long way. Sometimes you can have the best plans in place and um, if droughts last long enough, they'll take you down paths you've never been before. Um, they find themselves working harder than they've ever worked before and you start in a strong position, you end up in a very ordinary position. Now, if you're in this position you are today, two years ago, and I ask you to say, now, would you like to feed for the next two years? Would you like to run your waters for the next two years? Would you like to pull your sheep out of the bog for the next two years? Will you sign up for that? The first thing they're going to do is think I'm crazy. There's no way in hell we're going to do that. The problem is, at the end of the two-year period after being in a full-blown drought, is you find yourself in that situation. And it has different levels because... Uh, let's say, for example, Broken Hill, for instance. Um, there are some areas which have been in a drought a lot longer than other areas. So people's perception, or even your own perception of how they're travelling, um, might be completely different about how you're travelling. So you're constantly looking over the fence at each other, saying, oh, who's doing it worse? Uh, who's doing it better? Um, you know, what's their management strategies? Uh, are they doing it right? Um, you know, should I follow them? Um, so, but what ends up happening in a big drought is you all in the, end up in the same situation. And the, the unfortunate thing is, is they most most people end up having to deal with a lot of death. Death, death, death. Death is part of farming, unfortunately, and um, and it always will be. Uh, um, whether that be your own stock or whether it be um, you know, your native animals, uh, whatever it may be. And in a lot of cases, a lot of people have to you know, um, euthanise stock, a lot of stock. And some people have the ability to be able to cope with that and some don't. If you have a pet in the house and that pet's been part of your life for 10 years and you see that it's passing away for whatever reason. It has an enormous effect on not only you, but the house, you know, whoever's living in that house. Well, you know, our, our domain, these farms, these stations out here, we, have, we take great care in um, looking after our stock and after our pets. And when that's compromised, that is quite difficult. So if you increase that single unit, say one dog as your house pet, into 10,000 head, You've got a whole lot of worry on your hands. 
You just need to take the emotion out of the game the best way you possibly can, but it'll come back and bite you every now and again. I mean, you, you're just inhuman if it doesn't affect you in some way or form. Um, some people have the ability to be able to deal with it and some don't. And uh, the ones that don't um, are, are the worry. And um, the ones that do, it does affect them. Um, but they just have the ability to be able to work with it. But, you know, people get affected by it. Self-doubt. Self-doubt. There's also um, a twofold effect that that has on people. Where they, they start drinking, they start you know, self-medicating. Um, instead of having one beer a week, all of a sudden they're having six a night. Um, all, all that that type of stuff. Um, so they lose their clarity of thought and in doing that, their, their ability to be able to make good sound decisions starts to waver, even though they think they are um, making good decisions. Um, so you start doubting yourself. You're thinking, oh, I've just, um, you know, I'm going to lose the property. Um, my family are going to think I'm a failure. Uh, where do I send my stock? It might be too late to send my stock because they're too poor. I can't, I can't afford to feed anymore. Then all the, you know, internal stuff, you know, um, self-doubting starts to happen. Uh, and unfortunately, um, people's coping mechanisms change. Their ability to be able to um, think clearly changes. Isolation. Isolation. You can have a lot of time on your hands. We get to spend a lot of time by ourselves, and uh, we do a lot of miles in the car and we get a lot of time to think. And um, you could probably say that you'd get into a situation where you can overthink things sometimes. Um, and I, I actually got into a situation there and I probably did it for the best part of nearly 10 years where it almost, if someone was sitting next to me if you could look over my shoulder when I was driving around doing the waters, you would think that I was talking to someone next to me. But I used to have conversations. Um, conversations with no one sitting next to me. And, um, and basically have an argument sometimes. Uh, which was, you know, always come out okay. But I mean, you, you fill your head full of rubbish. And um, you exhaust a lot of energy on nothing. But because it went on for so long, I just thought, you know, I've had this issue for a very long time. I've just had so much stuff going on in my brain for a very long time. And I'm thinking I'm walking around being normal, but tr- truly um, that wasn't the case. I was you know, internally combusting. It was a fairly significant dry time. So I assumed it was the drought, but it turned out that it was... Yeah, it was other things as well that were bothering him. So if you put the drought, you know, family pressure, you know, succession, um, all that sort of stuff tied into one, all of a sudden it becomes a, a pretty tricky situation. Therefore, uh, a lot of people will f- uh, fall into a depressed state. They won't even know they're in it. They won't even know they're in it. One of the issues is with growing up in the bushes, you, you're constantly trying to prove yourself. Um, what you do out there is basically your signature. 
you're, you are completely in control of your actions um, and your actions basically tell you who you are and how you are as a person. You know, in my case, I was well aware of that. I felt like I was coming off the long yard for half my life, uh, off the long run for half my life. It constantly felt as if I had to prove to either my parents, which I had no pressure there, by the way, to prove, but uh, it was self-imposed. And um, for the people I work for, constantly prove that um, I was capable. Um, and then if something went wrong, you used to knock, I used to knock myself around about it, you know. And if you're out in one of these places and you can't pull yourself out of bed in the morning to go to work, um, you know, you're, you probably should be looking to do something else. So you put yourself under enormous amount of pressure, undue pressure, um, a lot of times, uh, a lot of times. What, what I used to do is I used to put, um, when I started work in the morning or I envisaged what I need to do for the week, I'd write down a list and uh, on that list I'd try and achieve everything on that list, no matter what. And um, a lot of times uh, I wouldn't achieve what I wanted to achieve so I created this massive workload for myself and um, I wasn't happy until it was done. We went through a fairly significant drought in 2009 and what I was finding is um, I was basically walking through the front door and walking out the back door and, you know, my kids were quite young and I... Actually, a bloke tapped me on the shoulder and said, you know, you better slow down, otherwise you're not going to see these kids grow up. And what he meant by that is slow down. And I'm thinking, well, how can I slow down when if I slow down or stop, this place is going to fall down around my ears? And it would have. Absolutely it would have. So, you know, um, there was outside pressures, unbeknownst to them, but there was also my internal pressures as well. So with the with what was going on, um, with that drought, uh, probably I foresee it as a bit of micromanagement as well. Um, and just, I actually started drinking more too. I um, probably was hitting the bottle more often than what I probably should have been and self-medicating. I just felt tired, um, not actually knowing where an out was not actually knowing what, what can help me. I think that was my lowest point. Um, I couldn't find solace in anything. I couldn't find it from my wife. I couldn't find it from uh, from my family. I couldn't find solace. I couldn't find um, anything that was going to get me out of the situation I was in. Which tells me, like now, I can see that, um, you know, I was in a dangerous dangerous space because I mean surely surely I can talk to someone about something and then I'll be right the next day but it, it was a big slow turning cog. I think when I started to think in the drought particularly when he was going out all the time and you know every day they you know having to, to destroy animals and I started to you know just little things I was just so oh, I started getting nervous about him going out and things like that and I just thought whoa why am I even why am I even thinking stuff like that you know and, I, and once you start thinking and worrying about things like that you know something's 
your gut, you know, your gut tells you that something's, something's not right. Lifeline crisis supporters can also provide advice to people who are caring for someone in emotional distress. If you're with someone who is not okay, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14. If life is in danger, please call triple O. Through his depression, I actually started to get my own a little bit. So, And it's probably from being worn out because you are trying to look out for them and then because, you know, um, he's a little bit on edge, you try and keep the children, um, you know, happy and, you know, just try to, um, I guess, over sort of overly overcompensate for what they may be missing out from dad you make sure they're getting it from someone and in that process you're actually becoming exhausted yourself and yeah I was emotionally exhausted and I was physically exhausted and I remember standing in the doorway in the kitchen and I was looking at my wife and I, I was just standing there and my heart just went berserk it just went I thought I was having a heart attack and um well, this is a worry. And I said, gee, my heart's bloody trying to jump out of my chest. And then I knew, well, that's, that's never happened to me. That's, um, that's quite strange. And that was probably a trigger point to actually thinking that something wasn't quite right. Um, and then, you know, I was bloody, I was crying a lot and, you know, over stuff which um, probably wasn't relevant and... This is what I was talking about earlier, that um, it creeps up on you. You don't actually know it's happening. Things started to change for Brendan after he went to a Royal Flying Doctors Service Life Skills course. It was aimed at young farmers struggling with rural issues and Brendan was asked to fill out a form. He ticked a lot of boxes and for the first time realised he was suffering from depression. Uh, The RFDS did a, a clinic... Um, with a life coach, Jill Rigney, and um, went to that and uh, we did a few things and I was thinking at the time, I'm thinking, gee, this sounds like me, you know, this sounds, this sounds horribly like me, you know, I'm in a, in a bit of a pickle here. So I decided that it might be time to um, catch up with someone, you know, um, talk to someone about it and that that took all my strength. I I always talk about taking the first step. That's probably the hardest thing you can do is accept that you've actually got something wrong with you or acknowledging the fact that you need an out. You need a spell. And um, so I walked into the Broken Hill Base Hospital and um, I uh, met up with a couple of people and we sat down and had a conversation. Oh, yes, Brendan, if you have a look, we've gone through a number of different things and you can see from the way that you've reacted. And uh, they basically told me that I um, had a um, form of depression and um, I thought, right, that was a massive relief for me. I actually thought at the time, um, I just felt this enormous weight off my shoulders because I thought, right, now I know what's going on. Now I'm going to fix this. When Brendan told friend and fellow farmer Lance about his depression, Lance was shocked. But as he considered his own increasing isolation, he realised his mate was not alone. Yes, it was a bit of a shock, really. Yeah, we didn't really expect it. We, we all thought he was on top of his game and everyone looked at him to, you know, thought he, he had everything organised and sorted, yeah. 
Well, it sort of hit home a bit and sort of made me think about what I was doing and um, what was going on there, really. And um, and one, once you sort of heard about it, you sort of started to notice different people that you thought could could have been covering it up as well and you just made conversation about it. Like when I first started, when I was um, 13, 14, I was at the end of the pack horse and the start of this new age, you know, aerial mustering and all that sort of stuff. And I got to learn a lot more. When you were riding back, back then you were riding around on horses, so you had a little bit more time to talk and take things in. And It was obviously there, but there were a lot bigger camps, so you had a lot more blokes to talk to. Like I remember being in a mustering camp when I was about 15. I think there was 23 people in, in that mustering camp alone. So you had a more, more of an opportunity to um, get things off your chest. People look at people who have depression and um, say, oh, well, you know, it's a commonly used word, um, you know, it's overrated and whatnot, or, it, you know, you may be just in a, in a state where you're overworked, you're tired, and you may not be depressed, but it's the prerequisite to fall into that state. So you're very close, there's a borderline, and it's not actually up to you to make that call. Allow someone else to make that call. And even if you are, if, you, if there is a massive workload and you're feeling under enormous pressure, there's so many good options out there that can take that away from you where you give you some uh, extraordinary clarity in what you do. I was out of hospital. They um, put me on some medication, um, which I was quite thankful for. And during a, the period while I was on that medication, I... I harness some tools which I used um, to get myself into a situation where I was thinking clearly. and But I also kept those tools with me and I've got them with me right now. So if I find, I find myself slipping into a situation where uh, I'm going down this road again, I just pull them straight out the toolbox and, um, you know, put them into gear. I need to actually acknowledge where my faults were or what I was doing to create my own toolbox. And I knew damn well what they were. I just didn't want to act on any of it. Um, or if I thought I was, I wasn't really. Um, so you need to accept where your faults are, what's actually making things tough for you. And, um, for example, alcohol. You need to accept that you're drinking too much. Um, so don't drink too much, but only you can tell yourself that. And, um, uh, if you've got the ability to tell yourself that and listen to yourself, well, then you're on the right path. So one of the reasons for me to actually come out and express why I've gone through this is for allow people to be able to come up to me and say, well, mate, can you help me out? Because it's easier to come to someone like me, or this is my perception, as opposed to having to walk through those doors at hospital. And with this um, this lifeline ambassadorship that I fell into, uh, it, it was a role that wasn't didn't even exist, and um, was asked whether I'd take on the role, and I just put my hand up straight away, and I said, "Well, yep, I'd love to do it." Um, it gives them the opportunity to come up and have um, a chat, a discussion. I just thought it was good because I, you know, at that stage I knew I had a problem. Um, I thought it was good that he sort of told us all what was going on and it made it a bit easier to talk to him. 
um, as well. Um, yeah, just it, it sort of give you that sort of bit of relief that you can actually talk in confidence with him and about the same issues, really. Oh, it's good to catch up and just get a few things off your chest and, you know, you can vent a bit and just sort of you know you're around the right company. Um, that, that's the main thing is get it off your chest and, and, and that way you know you're not alone. Um, you're not fighting a, you know, a, a big battle on your own, which is most times it's in your own head. I, I struggled. I didn't like leaving the place because you just felt as though it was going to fall apart if if I did leave. I think for 12 months there, I think I, I went to town for three days and that wasn't three days in a row. It was one day here and one day there, sort of in and out um, for the year. Um, and that got a bit hard and that's when I sort of... I suppose that was probably the year everyone was telling me I did have a problem and I didn't believe them. Yeah. And it wasn't long after that I realised I did, did have a problem. It is a lot easier to do it um, with, with a mate, so you can you can let the vent that little bit more. Well, it made a big difference. Um, it, it was it was a load off my mind. Like as I said, like you think you're the only one going through it in the area, and you don't want to put it out there because because you just don't want to deal with everyone else's problems because you got you got your own to deal with. Is is a big thing. Look, if I if there was someone in the district that knew out there that one of his mates or one of her mates um, that was in strife, I'd, I'd be quite proactive in um, actually take, making an advance and just asking if they are okay. Um, um, it's really important. They're probably not going to get the answer that they think they should be getting, though. Um, they'll ask if they're okay, but they'll, they'll generally just say, yeah, no, I'm doing all right. No, full well, they're not. That's the tricky part. I think um, when it gets to that point, you know, especially when the alarm bells are really ringing, um, yeah, just ask how they're going and make the phone call, yeah. It was almost instant, really. He really, um, once he'd unloaded all that, he could see the, um, the light at the end of the tunnel and he could see what he had to do. And now I can see when he, if he starts to possibly have feelings like that again, you can see him... Um, sort of stepping back and assessing it and then making the right choices. I learned quite a few tools. And one of the biggest things for me is um, exercise. Uh, it's a known fact that it helps with um, depression. And I've, I've all, sports always played an enormous role in my life. So, you know, I'd travel 140 k's to Broken Hill and go and play AFL. I didn't just do that because I enjoyed it. I did it because it helped me. And, you know, it was not uncommon for people to drive down the road and see me with my joggers on running up the road. And they'd look at me and, why in the hell are you doing that? Well, I was doing, doing it because it made me feel good. And um, you're punishing yourself, but you, the return you're getting is uh, it's quite good. And um, so I'm, in a, I'm now swimming with... Um, uh, a club in Broken Hill called Broken Hill Aquatic, and um, that's been enormous for me. It's a good out for me, so it gets me off the off the station. And I love my position here, but it it's just a good out because you're doing something completely different. Um, and being different's not bad. Being different is good because it allows you just to do whatever you want, and um, and that's empowering. Uh, as opposed to trying to, you know, follow the next person in front of you and trying to be like the next person, be like who you want to be. 
And um, that's taken me down the road of, um, you know, doing ocean swimming and whatnot. So between ocean swimming, running um, and working, um, life's pretty good at the moment. I'm trying to make up for lost time um, um, the best I can and uh, there will be nothing that ever gets in the road of myself and um, my kids ever, ever again. Very proud of them all. Look, if I had to give someone a message, I would just say acknowledge the fact that you may need help, even if you perceive that you don't. Uh, if you're doing something that's um, not quite within your character or if you find yourself that you're under pressure, the best thing you can do is just acknowledge it first because that's the hardest thing um, and then seek help. Seek help. And once you seek help, um, it becomes very simplistic. Um, after all, you're in charge of your own well-being um, People out there that know they're in a in a, a situation that's not nice, um, for them to be able to get on track, they need to search and look for help. It's quite difficult. There's no disguising that. Um, but once you take that first step, things get a hell of a lot easier. The closest beach that... Um, I've swam at is in Adelaide. Yeah, so that's uh, about 500-odd k's from here. Um, yeah, that's the only downside. <laughs> yeah, I wish I could get up in the morning and swim in the ocean every morning, but, you know, I drive to town and do a couple of sessions there a week and got a couple of champion little kids there that uh, feel a little bit out of place at times, but, um, oh, they're, they're robots. They're absolute robots. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Holding On To Hope. Lifeline Australia is grateful to all our interviewees who share their stories in the hope of inspiring others. We also acknowledge all of you who provide support to people in crisis and those on their journey to recovery. If you found this podcast helpful or inspiring, please share it, rate it, write a review or subscribe wherever you download your favourite podcasts. If this story has affected you and you require crisis support, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. You can do this at any time or visit lifeline.org.au to access web chat every night from 7pm to midnight. If it's inspired you to be a Lifeline volunteer or to donate, please visit lifeline.org.au. With thanks to Wahoo Creative for interviews, editing and production and the voice of lived experience, which is essential in the development of our work.